I have often asked myself the question, what's it going to take to get things turned around in this country? More than once during the past five decades since I graduated from high school, I have stated that things surely can't get much worse in this country. And yet, they have. I have often voiced my own negative, pessimistic opinion that we are on the verge of collapse as a nation. Not from the outside. Not from external forces. But we're on the verge of collapse from within. And such were the days of Hosea. Last week we saw how chapter 4 began. It began a major division in the book of Hosea, lamenting there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And Hosea goes on in verse 2 to give what sounds like a description of today. There is swearing and lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Listen to me. The issue of race and prejudice is not just an American problem. Nor is the problem of violence just a racial problem. One scholar has written, religion, caste, creed, color, values, possessions, politics have all been blamed for those who hate someone. And the cost in life has been huge. For those of you who might have studied or dabbled in philosophy as I have done for years, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche one of the most vociferous atheists of all time, warned us that in the late 19th century, that's when he warned us, he warned us of the danger that laid ahead, and in his words, he said, God has died at the hands of the philosophers. Now, the result of the removal or even the attempt of removal of God from all things public, the attempt to bifurcate, to sharply divide the so-called religious from the secular. The effect of that was that in the 20th century alone, more blood was shed than in the previous 19 centuries put together. Nietzsche warned that the madman had arrived, but it would take time for us to see what that meant. And I believe, with many others, that that time has now come. The power of the individual to kill with words and or weapons exposes the hate that we nurture in our godless times. And in dealing with that section of the book, chapter 4 through 7, 
with a message that I entitled last week, Hope and Repentance. I concluded with a reminder that restoration of Israel and Judah was prevented by their character, their idolatry, placing things and people in a position that only God should occupy, their lack of understanding, and their deeds. Chapter 5 verse 4 said, Do not permit them to return to their God. Only a heart-rending, life-changing, true repentance would work. Another important point that I stressed last week, and I've stressed off and on during the first three works, was the important role of the prophet in speaking God's Word and, and living out God's Word. Living it out by means of symbolic action. And closely connected to that was we saw how Hosea, and we should be seeing how Hosea continues to use images and metaphors that all should be explaining things to us. For instance, just the simple image of marriage and what it should mean. Eric and I talked about this whole issue a few weeks ago as he was preparing to marry his friend Jordan, do the wedding service. And we talked about how from the beginning of time, God created it so that it would be a man and a woman coming together and and becoming one. A relationship that should not be divided in any way. And how Jesus used a wedding ceremony to do His first miracle. And then how Paul used marriage as an image, a metaphor for us understanding our relationship with God. The church is the bride of Christ. And that's why we should be trying everything we can do to present ourselves holy, pure, blameless before God. Hosea's marriage to Gomer. God said, go and marry an adulteress, a disloyal woman of ill repute, so that you can know what it's like from my perspective as God to have a bride that continues to walk away from me. In the naming of His children, not my people. What a name. Can you imagine going to school the first day? What's your name? Not my people. Okay, kid, get with it. Now, what's your name? Or how about no mercy? But they were names that had meaning. And even his son, Jezreel, was named pertaining to the valley of Jezreel. And how God would break the bow of Israel at that location. Two metaphors brought together. And in the section of Scripture that we're using as our text this morning, the images and the metaphors are abundant. Using known objects to help us understand the deeper meaning that's to be revealed. Now we continue our search for major messages from the minor prophets today with a message that I have titled, Reaping the Whirlwind. And our text for today includes all of chapters 7 through 10. And so I'm not going to read to you four chapters in the Bible this morning. 
But I do want to read a few selected verses. And so let's go to God's Word together. Hosea chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, and yet they do not return to the Lord their God. Nor do they seek Him for all this. Chapter 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. When I looked at this passage, I, I looked at it in the, in the sense of basically three things. Israel had a divided heart. And not only that, but because of that, there was an effect that that had. Their lack of understanding. And God still called them. So let's go to that first section. The disease. A divided heart. Three of Israel's failures were failures that are common today. First, verse 8 that I read, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Now this was not a statement about racial issues as much as it was about religious issues. God commanded His people Israel not to intermingle with the Gentile nations, but His concern was that association with those idolatrous nations would somehow turn their hearts away from Him. And they would become corrupted like the heathen. And that's exactly what happened if you read through the historical books of Kings and Chronicles. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 9 says, when thou have come into the land which the Lord God gives you, you should, not, you should learn not to do the abominations of those nations. And again in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, Consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, I want to use uh, an object lesson, and to be honest, I didn't prepare myself for this like I should have. But I'm going to use the other offering plate that we didn't use. If the felt, the pretty felt, wasn't in this, so that it was just a silver bowl, we could use this silver bowl to put a food item in to serve. Okay? But these bowls have been set apart for a specific purpose. They have been consecrated. That's what the word means, set apart. 
And guess what? That's all the word holy means. It means set apart for a specific purpose. And when God says to the nation of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt and out of slavery, you need to be holy, He's not saying you need to be sitting around like goody two-shoes with your arms folded, staring down at your belly button and humming, and reading another verse and humming. No. He's saying you are to set yourselves apart for the work that I've asked you to do. To consecrate yourselves. And that's not just an Old Testament teaching. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-16, to 16, Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quoting Leviticus. Our task as a church is to set ourselves apart, to live differently. Nobody should have to have us say to them, oh, I'm a Christian. They should be able to see it. A dear friend of ours who passed away several months ago, and and I was able to be a part of the the ceremony as a service. It was a celebration as well as Eric was. George was sharing with Jesse and I one time around the, the table in their home how one day he just decided at work that he was going to let the guy who worked with him know that he was a Christian and was going to invite him to church. And so when the opportunity came, that's what he did. And George, with tears coming down his face, said to me, and you know what? He was a Christian too. And all of these years that we had worked together, we could have been enjoying that time so much more if we'd have just let each other know that we were both Christians. He said, when I told him that, the guy said, well, I knew something was different about you. In his book, The Next Christians, Seven Ways You Can Live the Gospel and Restore the World. Gabe Lyons describes what he calls cultural Christians. The Apostle Paul called them carnal Christians. Okay? And in his book, what Gabe Lyons talks about is Christians who fail to differentiate between what it means to live according to their faith and lifestyle and their beliefs and how people are living in the mainstream. And because of that, they prefer to blend in. Thinking that somehow they can live like everybody else from Monday to Saturday and yet will be accepted as a true Christian because of their hour or so on Sunday that they go to church. 
That's what was happening in Hosea's day. They were intermingling. They weren't allowing themselves to be separate. Now, we can't leave the world. John will say, we have to be in the world, just not of the world. Otherwise, how would we ever be able to share the message with unbelievers? We have to be around and associate and friends with unbelievers. We can't just, as hermits, isolate ourselves out into a little place and say, well, you know, we're not going to be around any of those people. The second issue as a part of that, still this first idea of the disease-divided heart, is that they also failed to be vigilant. I love this metaphor that he gives us. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Say, now what in the world does that mean? You know what? Everybody who read Hosea in that day knew exactly what it meant. Because you know how they cooked? They put their bread in the oven and after a while they turned it so the other side would cook. In other words, what he's saying is they were half-baked. They were half-baked. They had been heated in the oven on the one side maybe for 10 to 15 minutes, but they never got turned. And so either they continued to cook and get burnt on the one side and totally uncooked on the other, or uh, they just were a mess. Like a pancake burned. And Ephraim boasted. They boasted how they themselves were a people sacred to God. And yet they didn't fully commit to Him. Although they took advantage of God's goodness, they didn't seek Him with their whole heart. Think about it. Because we know people very close to us who were facing very serious situation who said oh, pray for us if God gets us through this we'll be active we'll be, we'll be in church we'll be worshiping and God got them through it and they were in church for a while but not a very long while and now they're almost as far away from the church as they can be not committed 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 33 said, They feared the Lord, but they served their own gods. After the manner of the nations whom they carried away in thinking they could serve both the Lord and the idols of the pagan nations around them, you see, they were, they were half-baked. They were unturned. And so they were really fit for nothing. Half-hearted hot in their forms and rituals. I know two men who were both elders in a church. And one would sit on this side of the communion table and one would sit on this side of the communion table in the church where they went. But neither of them talked to each other for over four years. Now what kind of message were they proclaiming? You see, we don't all only speak and proclaim something by what we say. Our silence is very 
communicative. Revelation chapter 3. As they are going through the churches, and they get to the church of Sardis, the angel of the church at Sardis is told, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you're dead. Can you imagine hearing that from the Lord? Thirdly, in terms of this divided heart, they even failed to seek God. Verse 10 says, The pride of the Israelites testifies to His face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek Him for all of this. In spite of all of the calamities that were happening to Israel, in their pride, they refused to commit themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. Rather, they were insolent towards God and failed to humble themselves before Him for their sins. Carelessly, they would not seek either the face or the favor of the Lord, even though they were in a degenerate, weakening state of being. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God is speaking to Solomon. It's the dedication of the temple. And it's a passage that has been spoken a lot here for the last several years. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now here's the point. If we fail to learn from the Israel's failures, we're in danger of missing the fullness of God's blessings. Like I began this sermon, I am afraid. I am pessimistic. I don't think that the majority of our nation is willing to make the changes necessary for restoration to happen. Now, the effect of these failures, the effect of the divided heart, was that they had a distorted understanding. Verse 11 of chapter 7 is another one of those images. And he says, like a dove, silly and without sense. Verse 13, I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. Now I had to go back and look that one up. I know how silly doves and birds can be. And I understand what it's like to have someone say, you know, I'd forgive them if all they do is say they're sorry, and yet the person won't. But this one kind of struck me. What in the world does it mean when it says they, they, they won't cry to me from their heart, but they just wail on their beds? Well, actually, it's talking again about a divided heart and the failure to repent. But when it says, wail upon their beds, that is likely a reference to the ritual wailing that was done for the deceased Baal, 
who was the God of the other nations, the Canaanite God. And it was a part of their festival rites. It was a part of their ceremonial lamentations or cryings. And so what he's saying is, you won't cry to me from your heart, and yet you'll go out there and you'll wail to that idol, that unknown God. You see, their thinking was distorted. That's why in verse 16 of chapter 8, he says, they have insolence on their tongue. In other words, hatred, lying, everything evil right there in terms of what they are saying. It's kind of like Psalm 73. Uh, They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. You might have seen it. A professor at a university in the United States of America who said very boldly, if Jesus came back to earth, I would assassinate him. Where have we gotten to as a nation? Again, in chapter 8, it's a picture of anger and indignation rather than repentance. That's why Hosea says they are hot as an oven even though they're only half-baked. And in chapter 9, verse 7, he says the days of punishment have come upon them and they're not prepared for them because they haven't listened to God. Their understanding has been affected by their divided heart. Now let me tell you something. If you are not a student of God's Word, if you're not reading the Bible, it's going to be very easy for you to believe any of the garbage that comes out on the television set or in the newspapers or in other publications. We've got to be testing all of that stuff against God's Word. Does it make sense according to what the Bible says? Because you know what? If you come on Wednesday nights, you're going to see over and over again. Archaeological evidence is just proving time after time the actual integrity of the Bible. Several years ago, a guy I know, Ben Witherington, who teaches down at Asbury's Theological Seminary, he got caught up in one of those so-called historical finds. It was a carsophagus of the bones of the brother of Jesus, James. And he got all caught up in that, and he actually agreed to write half of a book. Half of it was about the finding of that carsophagus, and the other half was his teachings about what we know about James from the Bible. What he said was very accurate, very scriptural. But what was in the other half of the book was very quickly proven to be a fraud and that some of the cuttings on the outside of that stone carsophagus only dated within the last hundred years. And it was done as a farce to make money. And I mean, it it ruined him in many ways for a while. He has since rebuilt his reputation. But we've got to be careful about what we see. I don't don't care what letters they have after their name. 
I don't want you to believe me because I have doctor in front of my name. I want you to search everything I say in the Scriptures and make sure that what I am saying is in fact according to God's Word. The question that I have to ask is how much different are we than these people that Hosea was writing to? Do we accept the discipline or the word of correction when it comes to us from God? How many times, uh, I can't even count that I've been told by people, I know what the Bible says, but I think. And I've had to say to them, you know what, if you don't believe the Bible, we don't have any ground really to stand on in terms of discussion. I mean, I'll be glad to carry on conversation, but it really doesn't matter what I feel or what you feel. Our feelings probably have a lot more to do with what we ate than they do with what we're hearing supposedly from God. Do we think that all the stuff in the Bible is no longer relevant? That it's old-fashioned? Have we so distorted our thinking that we're in danger of being capable or good candidates for restoration and healing? And that's where the call comes in. And it's a difficult task. I'm not going to say it's not. I am not one of those preachers who says, oh, it's easy to be a Christian. It's not. It's hard. It's easy to get started on the right road. You drop down to to chapter to verse twelve of chapter ten. First of all, in verse two, he says that we have to bear our guilt. But then in verse ten, here's the task in a nutshell. We've been sowing the wind, and in doing so, we've been reaping the whirlwind. I mean, doesn't that describe our lives, especially in twenty twenty? I love the little cartoon I saw that said that if 2020 was one of those trucks that drives around town with goodies, instead of being the ice cream truck, it would have on it liver and onions. Now, I'd be thrilled with that. My wife brought me back on her trip. She brought me back leftover liver and onions. And that was a treat. But not everybody's going to want that to stop that truck if it says liver and onions. That's why we need, according to verse 12, our task. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it's time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. What beautiful images and metaphors there about how if we are willing to humble ourselves and seek righteousness, what we can gain. So in conclusion, it's time for an assessment. Where are we at? Are we living the life that the Bible says we need to be living? 24-7, 365. 
Are we studying the Bible? I know a lot of people who do a lot of reading hardly ever open the pages of the Bible. You know what? When I get to heaven, it's not going to matter a hoot how much of Shakespeare I know. And I enjoy reading some of Shakespeare's words. It's not going to matter a hoot how many of those articles from Reader's Digest I've read. Some of them are enjoyable. What's going to matter is how well I have studied and how well I know God's Word and how well I have applied it in my life. Let's pray.